Perhaps it was a bit delusional for Grayson to think he could remain unknown. It had never been in his nature to want to stand out. Now he was very literally one of a kind. He had no idea how such a thing should be played, but he suspected he'd have to learn. We need to talk, the Thunderhead had said on the day Endura sank, and it hadn't stopped talking to him since. It told him that he had a pivotal role to play, but not what the role would be. That's a quote from The Toll by Neil Schusterman. This is YA Book Chat, and I'm your host, Leah Stuhler. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of YA Book Chat. I am very excited you are here and you are listening. And today we are finishing off the Ark of a Scythe trilogy by Neil Schusterman. We are going to be covering the third and final book in the trilogy, which is called The Toll. And again, I have Victoria here with me. She's been here with me these past couple books, and I'm excited to have her back again. Hey, Victoria, how's it going? Hey, everyone. I'm super excited to be back on YA Book Chat. Thank you so much for having me, Leah. <laughs> of course. I love having you here. Today, we're going to do things a little bit differently. Uh, I have some stuff that I really want to hash out with this book, <laughs> um, but mm-hmm. stuff I want to hash out first in the spoiler-free zone before we even get into the plot. So um, it's going to be a little bit more interesting today. I think we're going to have more to hash out in general terms about this book um, than just the plot line. But just um, super quick. So if you've read these books, you know, you've been following along, you kind of know what's happened already in the first two. Um, But basically in this third book, what happens is, you know, we have Goddard who has now kind of made himself the high blade of mid-America and he thinks that he is God and has pretty much tried Trying to take over the world at this point. We have Grayson, who, if you remember at the end of the second book, at the end of Thunderhead, Scythe Anastasia kind of told him to go hide in a Tonist cult. So he's been living there with the Tonists, but he his role kind of changes in this book and he becomes really a lot bigger. He becomes um he move he pushes the plot forward. Like we couldn't have stuff that happens without him. And he, remember at the end of Thunderhead, everybody in the whole world, except for Grayson, got marked as unsavory. And he is the only one who is not unsavory now. Everybody else is. And then we have Faraday and Munira. If you guys remember uh, at the end of Thunderhead, they were off to find the land of Nod, as they were calling it, the one blind spot that the Thunderhead was not aware of. And they left on the day that Endura sank. And so they have no idea that Endura sank or anything that happened because they just went off on their merry little adventure. So we meet up with them again in this book. And then again at the end, so like I just said, Endura sank at the end. We had some big characters who died. Citra and Rowan were in the vault and rendered dead-ish, but they're not dead completely. But we don't know if they're going to be found, when they're going to be found, what happens. So all of those questions and things get answered in this book. So that's kind of the general on what the plot line is going to kind of be. But like I said, before we get into this plot line. There's just 
a lot that I want to discuss. And again, this part will be spoiler free for everybody who's listening. All right. I promise we will, I will warn you when we head into our spoiler spot. All right. First, oh, Victoria, where do we even begin? <laughs> I don't, I honestly don't know. I think, I think we oh, have man. similar, similar opinions on just, yeah, kind of overall what's going so. on in this book, but I don't, I don't know where to start. So just so everybody listening understands, this was not my favorite book out of the three. Okay. Overall, not a bad book. And I enjoyed it in general. There were parts of it I enjoyed a lot more than others. And I actually, I did like the ending because I felt like he concluded it in a good way. It had a solid ending. Part of it was very creative. Part of it was something that I thought was like very appropriate and like a great way to end it. So I was happy and felt satisfied at the end. There was just stuff in the middle that I was kind of like, I don't know about this. All right. I want to talk about first the time periods in this book. So this book takes place in two different time periods. And I got to be honest here, it took me a little while to figure this out at the beginning of the book. I was a little confused at first. What happens is the book starts at the very beginning of the book. First of all, he introduces us to these brand new characters who we've never met before. And that's a whole other thing in, in and of itself that yeah, we're going to discuss. Yeah, I want to I talk <laughs> we about are that. are going to discuss that. Don't worry. <laughs> I, I have strong feelings about that one. Me too. Neil <laughs> When it starts, it starts, it takes place three years after the end of Thunderhead. So the characters at the beginning are looking for, you know, the remains of Andura. And at first I thought, oh, okay, so it's probably not that long after. And then you realize at some point, it's actually like three years later. But then what happens is eventually, like I said, we get to Faraday and Munira. But here's the thing. Their storyline starts on the day Andura sink. So you're reading and it's like, okay, I finally figured out a couple chapters in here that we're in the future after Andura. And then you get to Faraday and you're like, we just went backwards. Is that what happened? So I wasn't, okay, you know what this is? Here's what I'm going to like in this too. Because I'm sure a lot of you by now have perhaps, maybe you haven't, but it's been very popular. Maybe you watched The Witcher on Netflix. Okay. Did you watch The Witcher, Victoria? I did. I played Witcher, loved it. And then I've been watching the series, but I know the story because I played okay. the game. See, I had never played the games. I didn't know anything yeah. about it. And so when I started watching it, I was like, something's not right here. And it took me, I'm not going to lie, almost the whole season <laughs> to figure yeah. out that it was like three different time periods. And the reason I yeah. finally figured it out was, okay, well, there were hints and some of the characters, of course, and things that happened and some of their lines. And I was like, okay, they got to be in different time periods. Right. And then I was listening to a podcast about the Witcher and somebody, and I went, oh, oh, that makes so much more sense now. So I feel like it was like that for me with this book. Cause it took me, it just took me a little while to wrap my head around the fact that we were in two different time periods. Was it like that for you too? Absolutely. And okay. So I'm, I'm not proud to admit this, but I didn't realize, like I was probably halfway through the book before I yeah. realized that, oh, there were different timelines that have now converged. And, and I was so frustrated because yeah. I kind of, I didn't read very closely. I'm not going to lie. I didn't read it's the fine. first part very closely. <laughs> so, so it, um, 
probably a little bit of that came in there where I wasn't like a very attentive reader. So I missed out on some of the timeline, like hints and clues. But then by the time I figured it out, I was like, oh, well, I'll, I don't care anymore. Like I'll just delete all the first half of the book and we'll pick it up from here. So so I kind of, yeah, it was. And to be honest, like they're the only like quote unquote clues that there were was I think at one point, one of the characters says three years ago when Andorra sank, like has a line like that. And then the only other clue is that, okay, as we know at the beginning of each chapter, Neil Shusterman does a little like blurb, whether it's from the journal entry of the scythe or like Thunderhead was like thoughts that the Thunderhead was thinking. This book is kind of a combination of both of those things. And so some of the scythe Goddard journals will say in the year of whatever, in the year of the pineapple, whatever it is, that's not a real one. I'm just making something up. But, but, but it's like, but even still, I'm like, well, that really didn't help me because yeah, it says, you know, it's the year of whatever, but then you go to the next chapter and it doesn't say that. And you're like, anyway, it was just very, I felt like it was very confusing and muddled. And like you said, even if I was paying closer attention, it was still confusing. And I just didn't, I didn't really like that. Like I, I got it at one point because I know he wanted to leave to start with Faraday and Munira from where they were on their beginning of their adventure and recap that whole thing. But I don't know. I just didn't feel like it was very clear and it was just confusing to me for quite a, quite a while until I finally realized what was going on. Well, and like, as you were talking about the uh, in between kind of the little inserts from just different Mm -hmm. documents or the Thunderhead, those kind of those little inserts in between chapters, there were a lot of different styles of them. Like there, there was deleted stuff from, you don't know what at the beginning. And then there was like, um, like almost like religious texts that were like a religious document and a critique on the religious document. And then there was Goddard's like journals. And so there were like a bunch of different things happening, even in the like in between chapter parts. And so it was very complicated. It reminded me of, you know, that meme, I'm going to try to do a really good job describing this for the audience, but the meme with the guy in the crazy eyes and his little button up shirt with plaid. And he's got the like board with all the red lines connecting Uh all the push pins. And he just looks like crazy. And he's like motioning at the board with frantic hands. It was exactly like that. It was. It was. I could just see Neil Shusterman being like, but this is how it makes sense. It was just, it wasn't cohesive to me. It was not cohesive at all. And I was like, I can't, my brain can't function this way. (laughs) I was like, I need this to come together a little bit better. But Mm -hmm. so, well, and I, sorry, I, I thought like, okay. I don't want to get too bashy because writing a book is hard. Props to anyone who's ever been published. Yes. That's hard. I'll Um, give you that. And every author has a different strategy and a different way that they do it. So, yeah. And like, I, I also thought like for some brains, this might be fantastic. Like for, for some readers, this just might be their taste. It might be what they like. And that would be awesome. Like Mm -hmm. if you like connecting all those dots, if you like kind of going on a treasure hunt as you read the story and getting really like diving deep into the conspiracy theory kind of stuff, (laughs) then this book maybe would have been really interesting for you because you would have been paying attention to the year of the pineapple or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe just not for my taste, but for other readers, I could see how they would appreciate it. 
Me too. And I'm, I'm, I agree with that. So the next thing that I kind of also had a little bit of an issue was, okay, so we had lots of new characters who were introduced in this book, plus our returning characters. I counted six separate storylines that happen and then nine individual characters plus extras, <laughs> like whose stories we're following. And it was insane. So, all right. So here's what I've got. So we have, first we have Grayson and the Tonists, because they're all kind of together. Then we have Faraday and Munira. Then we have these brand new characters who come in, one of them whose name is Jerry. And then we have um, Posuelo, who is from the, it was South American, right? The South American. Amazonia. Uh, Amazonia. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. I knew there was a different word for it. <laughs> I was just trying to remember. Amazonia. And then we have Rowan and Citra and their storylines. And then we have Scythe Goddard and Scythe Rand who are together. So we've got their storyline and all of that. And then we have a whole other group of people. We have the Nimbus agents who now have their own storyline. And we have new Nimbus agents to deal with. And I was just kind of like, this is a bit overwhelming. Now, I I mean, okay, I get it. Books have a lot of characters and different storylines. Like I have read plenty of books, you know, Red Queen series being one. I just finished The Queen's Assassin. She's got telling the story from multiple points of view. But like, I, I mean, there's one thing about having, you know, telling the story from multiple points of view. And then there's like just overflow. I feel like this was just too much, at least for my brain. Again, maybe other people liked having the points of view of all of these different people. I did not. I felt like for me, it was, it was too many. Yep. What were your thoughts on that? I, I also thought of one more character that is kind of on their own, doing their own thing. And that's the Thunderhead. Um, oh, right. Exactly. <laughs> to me, in this book, especially like the Thunderhead is kind of always been a character but that really gets established in this book as like their the thunderhead is their own entity mm -hmm. and thing and has agency so so i also was like we're also hearing from the thunderhead a lot more in this book i am a writer and i am learning a lot about my own writing like practice and um my own writing process and creative process and i hate as a reader hate multiple points of views like I hate it I really 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 hate it um, I've never really enjoyed that and so so I've been trying to challenge myself by reading books like the Ark of the Safe trilogy where where there are multiple points of view because I think it can be done really well and yeah. guess what I did for my first novel I decided to write a book with two <laughs> main protagonists and they alternate points of view so nice. I realized really quickly that I had to like read books similarly so that I could write it well anyway so like this is no stones against doing that I think that writers can do this really well right. uh, I have read some fantastic books that do this expertly but <laughs> I <laughs> yes but here's my here's my rant I was very frustrated because it's the third book in the trilogy and we mm -hmm. begin the book with characters we're not attached to yes. and 
And that's, that was a real hard pill for me to swallow. By the end of the book, I really loved Jerry's character. I, I was all oh. for this. I was like, team Jerry, this is fantastic. What a fan- phenomenal character. But at I, the beginning of the yeah. book, I didn't care to like two seconds about that person. Right. Like I was just like, no, who cares about them? That they, they are not important. I want to know where my baby Rowan is yes. and Citra and what's going on with them. I think we were, we were like the same with this because I also actually really love the character of Jerry, but later on, I did not, I agree. I did not like starting this and I literally like, I started reading and I was like, um, what is going on here? Started flipping through the pages to see how many chapters it was before we got to Rowan and Citra because and like it was every chapter I read, I still did it, even though I had looked and seen, okay, they come in in chapter seven or eight, whatever it was. Not soon enough, by the way. But <laughs> I was like, <laughs> so every chapter I was like, oh my gosh, when am I going to get to them already? This is ridiculous. Because even he even puts Grayson in at the beginning, which is great. And I love Grayson, but he is not who you really want to find out about right away. Like Rowan and Citra went down under the water in a vault. They have gone deadish. They're buried at the bottom of the ocean. We want to know when they're going to be discovered and brought up, you know? And so it was, it was very hard for me to just, I mean, just to be introduced to brand new characters right away. I feel like I started reading it and I was like, who is this? Why, mm-hmm. why do I care about this mm-hmm. fisherman? I Absolutely. don't care about him. I, I yeah. want to find out what's going on. And again, you know, I am with you. Like, I love, I have no problem with reading books where there are multiple storylines and where the story is written from multiple points of view. I have done that multiple times. I just felt like, for me, this was too many. I've done, oh gosh, books with maybe four or five and, and that worked for me, but like this was, I mean, we got like 10 here <laughs> and I was like, I can't take this anymore. <laughs> Too many. And Overload. It, it might have been like partly because there was a timeline jump and multiple points of yeah. view. Six of Crows has six different, like by Lieber Dago, um, has mm-hmm. six different points of view fantastic book like I loved that book devoured it it was so good we listened to the audiobook and so it had like different voice actors it was fantastic mm. but they were it was a linear storyline and yeah. they interconnected the the um, points of view were very interwoven and so you felt like you were never pulled out of the narrative because it was just right. always moving the story forward but with this book we we jumped back and forth and from character to character and plot line to plot line. And it was just, it was a lot. It was very overwhelming. So I kind of feel like picking maybe one of those literary devices would have been better. But again, maybe, maybe you're the type of person who wants their pegboard with all the red lines connecting (laughs) and you think this is really fun. Yeah, no, I agree. I think, I think you're right. I hadn't thought about it that way, but what you're saying actually makes really good sense because the books that I've read where there have been multiple storylines like that and multiple characters and the story is written from multiple points of view have all been one linear timeline. Whereas, you know, this is not. Um, So I think that that does make a really big difference. That's a really good point. And then, sorry, one other thing, just like my second part, my second issue with this was that I really liked Munira and she didn't, I really, really liked her. And I, her and Grayson, when they were introduced in Thunderhead, they 
really like I enjoyed them and it wasn't overwhelming because it was just the two characters but I felt like Munira just got kind of shafted like she was there with Faraday for most of the book but then but then she didn't really get a whole lot of limelight and we introduced all these other characters that I was kind of like not interested in and so I wanted her to have more book time more face time so I kind of feel like maybe some of the roles that the other characters played could have been filled by pre-existing characters which which is also an issue because you're making it needlessly complicated at that time and I sound really critical but I just I was putting my (laughs) writer brain on and thinking like okay would I want to do this to my reader Right. right. And then as a reader, no, I don't want to do, I don't want to read that. It takes too much, too much right? brain power. Oh man. And just, you know, and I just want everybody listening to understand and to know, I, you know, please know that in, in us reviewing this, it doesn't mean that we don't have any respect for or like Neil Schusterman. I actually think that he is a fantastic author. I have read some of his other books that are really good and I absolutely loved. It's just sometimes you like a book and sometimes you don't, you know? So please just know that I'm still, we're still fans of him. (laughs) This just wasn't our favorite book. So. Well, and I do, I have some really like things I think he did really well in this book too. Um, So when, when it's time to talk about that, like I am, the trilogy as a whole is really well developed. It's really well paced. So there's lots of stuff that I loved about it, but just the toll on its own was, was a hard one. Took me Mm -hmm. a long time to get into it and, and it just kind of seemed to drag. Yeah. And that, that was actually the third thing that I wanted to bring up is that I, I felt like there was a lot in it that I just didn't want to read. And I wanted to like skim over and skip because I felt like there was just a lot of filler and kind of like, it almost felt like he's trying, it was trying to establish more about these characters. And I'm like, I already know this stuff about them. I already know Goddard is this, is this horrific horrid person who's very selfish and wants to take over the world. And, and I didn't feel like everything that was done with him was necessary. And with Grayson, Grayson is huge in this book. And there's a reason, which we'll get into later, but I did still kind of feel like some of the stuff with Grayson even was overwhelming and more than I needed. And I, yeah, I just felt like there was, like I said, just a lot of filler and like, I just wasn't as interested in the whole book. And I kept on looking and going, how long is this thing? Oh my gosh. You know, (laughs) which sounds horrible, but I just felt like it was too long for me. Whereas I recently finished Holly Black, the Folk of the Air trilogy. I felt like her third book was too short. And it was like, it didn't give me enough. Like I really, really wanted more. Whereas this one, I was like, this is too long. I wanted less. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, right. Yeah. I don't know. What was your yeah. thought? I really struggled to get into the toll. I really, really struggled. And I mm-hmm. think most of it was because we had those new characters at the beginning. I didn't really care about them. So I was very much like you trying to like skip to the next you know, like, okay, when are we seeing Rowan and Citra again? And then I I actually kind of liked what happened with Scythe Rand's character. I thought that was fairly compelling. But again, she's a secondary character. So it was just right. lots of lots of static from secondary characters and and really like in the first book in Scythe, you fall in love with the world and with the with this 
kind of really cool um like utopian society yeah. and you really are rooting for Rowan and Citra and you want to root for them for the rest of the mm-hmm. books so then to not have them be a part of like the initial first half like I they didn't really come in and then they didn't really get any time together no. <laughs> until later on so yeah I just it yeah yeah it just really pulled me out of the story but once I I don't know like maybe a third of the way in things started to pick up and then the the later half I I couldn't put it down I finished it really quickly once I got to kind of a certain point when everything converged and then the pacing picked up really quickly and I was like okay here we are this is the book I wanted (laughs) it's just like the beginning was hard to get through and then there's like a couple of parts in the middle but yeah once you get to a certain point it does get a lot better and it finishes really well I like Mm -hmm. I said earlier I really do like the way that it ended but yeah it's just kind of get into that point there is one really weird thing that happens (laughs) that I want to talk about and I'm sure you'll understand (laughs) but okay so on that note let's let's start getting into the plot because there are just some things that um I want to talk about all right so before we do this though I just want to tell everybody today's in-depth, spoiler-filled plot discussion is going to be a little bit different. I am, because there is so much that happened and there was so much that I felt like was not necessary, I am going to skip around a lot. I'm probably just going to do more, um, talk more in general terms about the plot and kind of what happens. I'll go in order a little bit, but I may skip around a lot more than I normally do. So just wanted to let you guys know. But All right. If you have not read this book and uh, after we've just bashed it, you still want to read it and don't want anything spoiled, (laughs) um, this is the part where you may stop because we're going to head into the plot more in depth now with spoilers. All right. Here we go. So like we've talked about, the book starts with new characters. And we have these characters of this character whose name is Jerry, who is a ship's captain. And he and Posuelo, Scythe Posuelo, who's from Amazonia, they go out on a boat to where Andorra sank to kind of salvage the wreckage from Andorra. And, you know, they find different things. They're pulling different things up. And Scythe Posuelo is really interested in finding Rowan and Citra and whatever they can and find out what happened to them. And, you know, he talks, Posuelo talks about them. And then Jerry has this quote where he says, perhaps whatever we, whatever we raise from the depths can bring her, Citra, some peace. And I really like that. Um, but it's like, I just felt that it was a really nice line. But then in a way, he's almost like assuming that they're dead dead. You know, like, Mm -hmm. and like, they're not going to find them, you know, to bring some peace to her because, you know, we're never going to find them. And I was like, dude, way to give up hope. The book just started. (laughs) Please don't give up hope already. And then I flipped through to see when we were going to get to them. (laughs) (laughs) Point number one. (laughs) One thing I want to mention too about Jerry, because this is important to Jerry's specific storyline. And what is made very clear at the beginning is that, first of all, Jerry's full name is Jericho, but we call them, I'm going to say them. Them. And you'll understand why <laughs> them, Jerry for short. And Jerry has, the way Neil Shusterman describes it, is he has 
fluid gender. So they are from Madagascar. And in Madagascar, in the book, children are raised genderless. And then when they become an adult, they can choose to be one gender or the other if they want to. Or if they don't want to, they can be live as gender fluid and kind of be either one. And Jerry does that. And it's really kind of interesting that that was the choice that he took. Um, because so what Jerry does is he says, Ooh, and I don't know if I'm going to remember the correct, uh, way it went, but he said by one way, like when he's on land, he likes to be either male or female. And then when he's on his ship on his boat, he's the other. That's what, that's what Citra said. Jerry's Jerry's. Okay. So is that I how really she, Jerry. she put that on Jerry? That, yeah, Citra okay. kind of said, oh, I understand why you would want to be a man at sea and a woman at land. And Jerry corrected her and said, well, actually, I prefer to be a, like, feminine. I prefer to be a f- woman when it's sunny because the oh, sun that's what it was. was, yeah, the sun was connected with very, like, masculine ideals. And so Jerry's kind of flipping that and chooses to be a woman and identify as uh, she, her when it's yeah. sunny outside. And then when it's cloudy outside, identifies <laughs> as he, him. And and then Citra kind of is like, well, what happens when it's partly sunny, partly cloudy? And Jerry <laughs> responds with, then I'm just Jerry and I'm, it doesn't matter. Like it, it's, yeah. it's um, both things and that both things exist inside of me. I really loved Jerry towards like once you kind of realized the sincerity of his character or their character I should say it became like I just I was like oh this character is fantastic and I really quite love them for the rest of the book one thing I was a little bit like had some questions around was why wasn't this introduced sooner like we didn't hear anything about Madagascar or um, like the possibility of being gender fluid in Scythe or Thunderhead and I I would have liked that even if it wasn't like a focus um, as the world building was happening maybe that Mm -hmm. could have been shared but um, other than that like yeah I think it was really well explored with Jerry in this book. It really was and I really love Jerry too and part of the reason that I really came to love Jerry was because of how protective they became of Citra. I mean, when we get into the later parts of the book, so, um, and again, here's, okay, so Jerry's from Madagascar, which like you said, we didn't have before. What The other thing we didn't have before was traveling to other countries in the first two books, whereas in this book, that's what happens. We They, they travel to different areas. So one area that Citra ends up going to with Pasuelo and Jerry is in Africa. And Jerry is just, I just love how, how he just really, or she just really, um, embraces Citra and like takes her under their wing and just is super, super protective of her. And it's Mm -hmm. like, it's very, um, fatherly in a way, or like, or almost like, you know, like you're my best friend too. I'm going to protect you. It's just, and for somebody who like Jerry didn't even know her for that long, Mm. but just automatically becomes this protector. And that was something that I really, really loved about that character because I feel, I felt like we didn't really have that because 
she doesn't have Scythe Curry with her anymore, who kind of filled that role a little bit before. And so, you know, she's got no parents around. Scythe Curry is gone. Scythe Faraday, who was also that for her in a way, is gone. Rowan it really is not with her because they're found together, but then they end up separated. It's a whole thing. So they really don't spend much time together at all in the book. And so they're separated at this point. And so it's, you know, she really doesn't have that person who is there for her like a family member in a way. And Jerry becomes that. And I just ate that up. I don't know why, but I, I was like, thank you. Citra needs somebody in her life who's going to be this for her. And so I really loved Jerry for that reason. One of the reasons. And and I found that Jerry really like expanded on a lot of human experience all in one character. Like, because when they meet Citra right away, there's almost like this romantic inkling, like they're, mm-hmm. they're going, like they're attracted to Citra because she's unique and important and powerful and they recognize that in her, but then quickly realize like that Citra's heart is with Rowan. Yes. And I think there's a line even that Jerry said or acknowledged or knew that her heart always would belong to the Black Scythe or something like that. Yes. Like it was kind of romantical and and again I ate that up because that's how I roll but then their (laughs) their relationship really blossomed into something like of mutual respect and um like almost like a devotion to one another that Mm -hmm. wasn't romantic that was aromantic and and I was like yeah that's possible and it was really effective especially considering the relationships Jerry developed later on in the book because those I also was so on board for her. <laughs> and and I said that we were going to skip around so we can talk about that okay, now because I, I really want to actually. So so Jerry ends up having feelings for Grayson and Grayson develops feelings for Jerry and it's actually like okay it's kind of awkward at first but it ends up actually working out and you're like yeah that actually kind of works it's really cool and there's a lot that kind of goes around it. I don't know how much I want to get into this, right? How much? Okay. So, all right, here's the really weird thing. I'm just going to talk about it now because it kind of matters <laughs> with this Jerry and Grayson discussion. And um, I promise you guys, I will come back around to like other like plotline stuff, but <laughs> I said I was going to skip today. So Grayson, you know, he continues throughout this whole book to speak to the Thunderhead because again, he's the only one not marked on Savory. So he's the only person in the whole world who can talk to the Thunderhead. And the Thunderhead is using Grayson to propel its plan um, of what it's coming, what is coming up because he does, it doesn't like what Goddard is doing, what has become of the Scythedom and all of this crazy stuff. So Grayson, you know, still has this like really strong relationship with the Thunderhead. And when he meets Jerry, he Grayson even talks about how at some point Jerry kind of reminds him of the Thunderhead, just the way that he talks and the way that he says certain things to him. And even, um, so the Thunderhead says at the end of Thunderhead, hello, Grayson, we need to talk. And the, he's, the way that he says, hello, Grayson, Jerry says those exact words to Grayson at one point in this book. And Grayson was like, whoa. That's just how the Thunderhead talked to me. Um, so it was kind of like they had this unique connection in a way there. And then the Thunderhead 
does this like crazy thing. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. I know what you're talking about. Does this really weird, crazy thing where it decides it can't take it anymore and it wants to know what it's what it's like to be human and experience all of these things that Grayson is experiencing and and whatnot. And so somehow it figures out a way to like put itself, like put its spirit if you want to say spirit, I guess, into Jerry. So like Jerry essentially is kind of like sleeping in a way, I guess. And the Thunderhead takes over Jerry's body and finds Grayson and has this whole conversation with Grayson. And Grayson is like, what is going on? And it's this really weird and crazy thing. And the Thunderhead, and they have this conversation and the Thunderhead's like, I just needed to know what this was like. And it's so amazing. You know, no wonder that you enjoy being human and experiencing all of these things. This is crazy. And then, and then <laughs> the Thunderhead, all he does is like touch Grayson on the face. Okay. It touches, he touches as Jerry touches Grayson on the face. And then he's like, okay, I'm complete. This is done. Now I can go back. And so it goes back into its computer system. And Jerry wakes up and is like, what the heck just happened? Okay. (laughs) And then (laughs) out of that moment, we discover later on, I think it's Rowan, right? Rowan goes into, he's going to meet somebody and he hears a voice talking to him and he's like, Thunderhead, is that you? And the computer system says, nope, it's not Thunderhead. This is Cirrus. So all of a sudden we have this brand new computer system and you're like, wait, who's Cirrus? Where did Cirrus come from? Where's the Thunderhead? Okay. So after this point, and again, I'm like way towards the end of the book, but whatever. After this point, Anastasia and company, everybody who's with her end up getting to the islands where Faraday and Munira are, right? They have this meeting, they're talking, and then they hear a voice and it's Cirrus. And Cirrus reveals itself, okay, and tells them about this big plan that it's got. And then here's what it says. Jerry glanced at Grayson, probably struck by the same revelation, that Cirrus was born of the moment the Thunder had experienced what it was to be human. Cirrus was the child of Grayson, Jerry, and the Thunderhead. And I remember reading that and literally having to stop and go, what? What just happened? How did a computer make a baby version of itself? Because it can't, oh my gosh, it was the weirdest thing. Were you, was that totally weird to you? Okay. Yes, it was. I had a, I had a moment of like, well, okay, no, I actually, I called it when, when the Thunderhead touched, uh, what's his face's face, um, uh-huh, Grayson. Grayson's face. I, I knew I knew that oh it was gosh. looking for like that human connection. And so after that, I was like, oh, it's going to totally succeed and replicating itself. And you realize in those in-between chapters, I don't know, I was probably at the end of the book when I realized this actually making myself sound way smarter, but um, <laughs> that the, the, it's the Thunderhead talking to itself. The Thunderhead has been trying to replicate itself and make a perfect version of the Thunderhead that doesn't, that's not bound to the same laws the Thunderhead yes. is bound to. And so he's, the Thunderhead found a loophole and is working on 
perfecting that loophole. What the Thunderhead realizes is that human connection is actually what made the Thunderhead perfect to begin with. All the other trial runs that the Thunderhead has to terminate, they're not ready to serve humanity because they don't have any concept of what it's like to be human. And so that's the purpose the Thunderhead does this with Jerry and Grayson. Also, the Thunderhead has a big old crush on Grayson. So, you know, that's a thing. Uh, Um, Yeah. It was weird, but at the same time, I I get what Neil Schusterman was trying to do. He's exploring he's exploring the meaning of love in a lot of ways with this these three and what the yeah. Thunderhead is trying to do, loving all of humanity and giving them a future. I do feel like we should probably discuss Grayson a little bit because he's the oh, namesake yeah. of the book. Like, yes, um, which and kind of, sorry, yeah, I just wanted ahead. to, we were on a relationship. So I just wanted to take that little yeah. detour there. I would, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, because then what happens too after that? So Grayson and Jerry kind of realize it and it's awkward with them for a little bit, but then they do end up coming together and realize that they like have feelings for each other. And it's actually, it's really sweet. Actually, I really kind of like it. It's very sweet. I was like, oh, it's very I sweet. really like this. Um, but yes, let's go back to, let's go back to some real plot line here. <laughs> towards the beginning of the book. Um, Okay. So can I just tell you first, because you just said how the book is named after him, which it is, but for multiple reasons. And I didn't even get one until Neil Schusterman spelled it out at the end of the book. Grayson's last name is Tolliver, T-O-L-L-I-V-E-R. So the toll is even in his name. Hello. Should have been obvious, but it totally wasn't. (laughs) And I was like, oh, it's the end of the book. I really should have known that. But anyway, so Grayson. All right. At the beginning of the book, Grayson, (laughs) remember, he's been living in the Tonist cult, okay? He gets kidnapped by a bunch of Nimbus agents who are the same Nimbus agents who end up coming back into the picture later on, by the way. And they kidnap him because they are desperate to talk to the Thunderhead. They can't talk to it, but they feel like they have no purpose. Because if you will remember um, from the first, from the other two books, the Nimbus agents' whole purpose, their job is to be a go-between between like the unsavory people and the Thunderhead. So they could talk to the Thunderhead. Like that was their whole job to communicate with it for other people. But now they can't do anymore <laughs> that anymore because they're unsavory. So they have no jobs. They feel like they have no purpose. And so, um, you know, they kidnap him to be like, help us find purpose and talk to the Thunderhead. And so he does communicate with the Thunderhead for them. And what he ends up doing is giving them two numbers and then they have to kind of figure out what those mean. And that comes in and it ends up meaning, it ends up being later on that it's the um, location, the coordinates for the location of the island, which are the Atoll Islands, A-T-O-L-L. Hello. Okay. Again, part of the off the title. <laughs> um, so it ends up being the coordinates for the island, and this is where Faraday and Munira are. And so the Nimbus agents go there, and they end up with Faraday and Munira and kind of helping them and working with them on this whole plan that the Thunderhead has rolling. But Grayson is with Adonis and we have Curate Mendoza who's there and he really kind of pushes Grayson into the public eye. He wants to let people know that Grayson can speak to the Thunderhead and that there is somebody who's able to do that because he doesn't want people to feel like 
totally helpless and he just wants to put Grayson out there. So he does, they do that. And everyone's like, Oh my gosh, you know? And then they have people like they put Grayson, they bring him out at one point. He's like by a bridge and it's a big one. What is it? Like the Brooklyn? I don't remember where they are. Is it like the Brooklyn bridge? Yeah, I think so. I think it is. And like, he's like this weird Oracle of Delphi kind of character under the Brooklyn bridge. It's I was like, that's, kind of a funny setting but I'm picturing this like he's under the bridge and this like tent or something and there's like water and it's muddy or like it was just it was a funny visual for me and all these people are coming and lining up because they want to talk to him and they want them to they want Grayson to talk to the Thunderhead for him and ask you know what's going on and um What's funny is, so Grayson sometimes really does ask the Thunderhead and tell them things, but then sometimes he also makes things up <laughs> and just lies yeah. and says whatever he wants. And I'm like, yeah, because oh, why wouldn't you? <laughs> right? He's having, he's having, he's like, it was kind of like he was forced into this position by um, Curate Mendoza and he just kind of deals with it in a way, you know, he yeah. doesn't really, I don't know. I felt like maybe he kind of liked it at first, but then he was like, all right, this is ridiculous, which is how I felt because we had, this is part of what bothered me. One of the, the things where I was saying there was just a lot of filler. There are quite a few scenes where the t- where Grayson is talking to Mendoza about all of this and him being, they, they, they name him the toll. This is what they call him, hence the name of the book. And so that's what they're calling him. And he just has, there's lots of conversations with him and Curate Mendoza that I was just like, ugh, blah, blah, blah. And then there are all these different scenes with him, you know, talking to different people. And you're like, why do I need to know this? Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. Well, mm-hmm. and and it's um like the purpose, I think, for having Grayson be the toll, like, of course, beyond, beyond the um, obvious where he's leading the people to the conclusion of the book, he's, mm-hmm. he's leading the Tonus to this like kind of new endeavor that the Thunderhead has been working on in secret in the Atoll Islands. Um, yes. But, like that's the very obvious one, but I felt like maybe more subtly, like we are exploring religion and how religions mm-hmm. are created and develop and the little in-between chapters kind of inserts are critiques of the Tonus religion from like the distant future right yes. so so it's kind of interesting because you're seeing these miracles and how these miracles happened because you've got the thunderhead which can make anything happen include including like taking over a person's body um but mm-hmm. the thunderhead makes it so that like doves rain down on um <laughs> grayson and like they they go a whole like coca-cola marketing scheme oh my gosh. on this it's um, crazy and then yeah, like there's so many weird little like miracles, quote unquote, yes, um, that happen. And then you realize that they're being documented and they've been spun into like actual doctrine by some futuristic mm-hmm. humans who are critiquing it and saying like, well, it's more likely that this means this and it's allegory for this, but it's all false because you have the actual, you have the actual book going on in front of you. So, you know, like Grace, it's not... <laughs> actually divine you know that right. he's a human you know that like all these things are happening and that it's kind of funny almost that the interpretation of it is so wrong from yeah. the time 
it actually happened. So I, I thought that was interesting. Like I, I thought it was interesting territory to explore. But yeah, it kind of bogged down the storyline, especially at the beginning. Like again, right. especially at the beginning. Towards the end, Citra, Rowan, Grayson, Jerry, the weird new baby, <laughs> the Thunderhead <laughs> baby, Faraday, Munira, they all come together. And like yeah. that was really awesome. You could kind of see the threads getting braided back together. Mm-hmm. And I liked that. Me too. So, that was the best part of the book for me at the end when absolutely. they all came together, especially yeah. the reunion between actually two, two favorite reunions, Faraday and Citra, only because they hadn't mm-hmm. seen each other in years. And it was also funny in a way. Mm-hmm. And, and then we'll talk about that in a bit. And then um, Citra and Rowan, favorite reunion ever. It was fantastic. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, we're all together and all happy. And it was great. But the, the, so the tone is too, which funny is, so when some of them become very, uh, very, very serious and very into it, um, there are certain sex, S-E-C-T-S, in case I wasn't speaking clearly, um, of the tonist who become very um, severe, very radicalized. They <laughs> Thank become you. Very radicalized. Thank you. Yes. And so what happens is at one point Goddard gets really annoyed with the toll and he wants to have him taken out. So he sends one of his little junior sites down there to New York city to take, or they go to, they actually go to this like chateau <laughs> curate Mendoza tells Grayson to pick a place to live. Like he gives him three options and Grayson picks this like little chateau. Cause he's like, just because I know it will annoy him the most. <laughs> it totally does. And so anyway, that's where they go to stay. And so Goddard sends uh, the, the scythe, the junior scythe down to kill the toll. And he, he poses as a cook or a chef, a baker, and he um, he's really bad at it, which is really funny because he makes these horrible foods and poor Grayson is like, oh, mm, yeah, delicious. <laughs> but like, but then, you know, that's kind of his in. And so he attempts to kill Grayson. Grayson figures out what's happening. You know, the guy doesn't kill him, but he ends up, Grayson ends up like talking to him and converting him to be on his side, which I really liked. And I thought that was cool, but they pretend that the toll is dead. Like they send a body up and make, cause in their scuffles, somebody, a couple of people did get killed, but he, so they send a dead body up because nobody knows what the toll looks Mm -hmm. like. They never really see his face. He keeps it covered. So they're like, well, we can fool Goddard. So Goddard thinks he's dead, but that makes all these other, um, Tonist, especially the ones who are in Africa where uh, Anastasia ends up, more radical. And they really go over the top because then they're like, you've killed our leader. You think it, you know what? It's like this. It's like, like if somebody killed the Pope, can you imagine what would happen? I yeah, mean, it's exactly like that. And yeah, and it like they become violent and radicalized. Mm-hmm. And it's it's an interesting it's an interesting way to weave in some of that commentary without it right. being like, and now I'm writing a religious commentary, right? Um, <laughs> so and and it could be like it's the tonists are so weird, like the religion itself is so strange oh my gosh, that it's, it's not crazy. like 
right? And it's not like, it's not any one religion that I think Neil Shusterman is kind of examining. It's kind of right. all of them. Um, yeah. But you're exactly right. It would be like if someone killed the Pope, Grayson is their prophet, and now mm-hmm. they have a justification to hate all sites for all eternity. Right. And along the same lines, and I don't want to go into this really long, but I definitely feel like Neil Shusterman used this book to make more statements about things yes. like religion, like you know, your sexuality. And did you catch this line? Okay. Goddard at one point is trying to come up with a plan on how to handle these people revolting against him. Right. And one of the size with him says, let's build a wall to keep them out. And Goddard says, only idiots build walls. I literally like slam my book was like, Oh, there it is. There's the big political statement of this book because everybody knows what he is referring to with that yes. one sentence. Yes. And as a as a friendly Canadian neighbor to the north, I'm going to keep my comments brief. Uh, <laughs> on fine. I don't want to talk politics. I just, you know, was like, he definitely made some points yes. in this book for he sure. He absolutely did. And, and I think that is part of the role of literature is to uh-huh. is to make those points in an entertaining thought-provoking way so that people can approach it because politics are hard to talk about right so yep. by removing the the realness from it you make it a safer environment to start discussing some of these views but yeah i i thought it was very interesting his choice of who said what in that yes. chapter <laughs> appropriate very appropriate All right. So that's kind of like our general gist of um, Grayson. I want to talk about Munira and Faraday. Okay. So like I said earlier, their storyline begins the day Andura sinks because they leave that day to go off and fly the land of Nod, um, which is actually the, and I'm probably going to butcher this name, Kwajalein, Kwajalein. I don't know. K-W-A-J-A-L-E-I-N. You guys figure it out. <laughs> Kwajalein <laughs> Atoll. Okay, that's the name of this group of islands, which is the blind spot that um, the Thunderhead can't see. So they go there, and as they get close to the island, there's a security system that's on the island that like starts firing stuff at them, and their plane gets shot down, but thankfully they're okay because they have these fantastic safety pods inside of their aircraft, so they get in the safety pods, whatever, and they get to the island. And they you know, are like, all right, awesome, we're here. Now what do we do? <laughs> but they start exploring, and they find a bunker down there that has computers and workstations and um, some notebooks lying around. So they, you know, want to look into everything and figure out what's going on. And then they have, um, they find a door, but they can't open the door because the door needs to have two scythe rings in order to open it. So they can't open it. And then here's what happens. We, we get Scythe Faraday and Munir, right? And we find all of this out in like one chapter. And then I looked, I counted, there was like, it, like 12 chapters before we get to them again. I, this was like, you know, like at the beginning I was reading and I was like, when are we going to get to Ronan Citra? And then we read this and I was like, oh, I want to get back to Faraday and Munira and find out what's going on in this island. Like it was so built up in Thunderhead. And then I was like, why are you making me wait like 12 to 13 chapters in between their storyline? That's not fair. <laughs> yeah. 
But yeah. But anyway, so what ends up happening is I'm going to skip. They find, oh, I guess I need to kind of, I, I need to talk about the Nimbus agents too at this point. We have to address them because the Nimbus agents flow into Faraday and Munira's storyline. So remember the Nimbus agents who kidnapped Grayson at the beginning of the book? <laughs> They come back into play. We have Loriana is the name of one of them and Bob, uh, Bob who kidnapped Grayson. And so remember the Thunderhead gives them two numbers, which again, we figure out are coordinates. So they go out on this mission. They're sent out by their director to sail on a boat into the Pacific ocean with hundreds, not just a couple hundreds of other Nimbus agents, um, they hit the blind spot and realize, you know, kind of what's going on because all the, um, once they hit the blind spot, their navigation system and all these other things stop working correctly. And so they kind of realize what's happening. And then their ship approaches the atoll islands and the security system starts going off and firing. And Munira and Faraday are like going frantic trying to figure out how to stop it. Munira, I thought this was ingenious takes a coconut, <laughs> climbs up and like shoves the coconut down into the, um, the cannon really is what it is. And then to stop it from firing. But anyway, so all the Nimbus agents get out of their ship, they get off the safety pot, they float to shore. And so now they're there with them and the Nimbus agents get there. And now, but when they get there, it's after, you know, remember Faraday and Munira had no clue about what happened to Endura, right? So Faraday is asking her questions and Loriana goes, I think you better sit down. <laughs> Those were literally her words to him. It's kind of like in Jaws when Roy Schneider says, I think we're going to need a bigger boat. Like, you know, <laughs> something yeah. big is coming, right? So yeah. then, you know, she tells him all about what happens. And of course, Faraday is heartbroken because he loves Anastasia and Rowan and blah, blah, blah. And it's this whole thing. But anyway, what ends up happening is with Faraday and Munira and the Nimbus agents on the island, the Thunderhead starts sending instructions. Because remember in the Thunderhead, Faraday real and Munira realized that when they were looking at all the maps that they, there was a camera in the room. So the Thunderhead actually ended up seeing where the blind spot was, even though it wasn't supposed to. So it figures out, start sending supplies to them. Um, all these ships start coming in with all these supplies and work orders. And the Thunderhead sends the schematics to Loriana. She, so she looks at it. She's the only one who knows what they're building because they start building all this stuff all over the island. Mm -hmm. And so that is essentially what they are working towards and what is going on. Eventually they do realize because it comes pretty, becomes pretty obvious at a certain point, they are building spaceships. They don't know why <laughs> they're building spaceships. But they realize this is what they're building. They build landing platforms and they build spaceships. So this is what's happening with them. And then at one point, I don't remember why it's, I'm sure it's in my notes, but Faraday kind of throws a temper tantrum. <laughs> I think he just like, he goes kind of like into a depression, right? Like he gets really yeah. sad about Rowan and Citra and he leaves the main island and goes off to live like a hermit <laughs> by himself. <laughs> on this other yeah. island because because he can and Munira comes and she brings him supplies and the Thunderhead you know has been sending them food and everything that they need and whatnot so she brings them to him and they chat and talk and it's this whole thing but this is why later at the end of the book 
Anastasia and Faraday's reunion is funny because he looks so raggedy from his little hobbit time on his own <laughs> island. <laughs> like she it's doesn't so true. Even, it's crazy. Like she doesn't even recognize him. And he's yeah. like, um, hello, it's me. <laughs> and then she well, realizes it's um he's despondent like that's the word for it because he is so and it's not it was rowan and citra but it was also like marie right like she yes she dies and like they if you remember have a history and so so then he's grieving all these people that he loves and he totally cuts himself off from the world and goes into his little hermit phase (laughs) and it actually Again, one of the situations where Munira gets shafted because mm-hmm. like she's there and she's been she takes care of him. She makes sure he lives for the next like three years. And yes. so I'm like, she should have had more justice done to her because I was like, that poor girl. <laughs> I know, I know. I did feel bad for her. And so essentially their timeline until it catches up to the three years later, the present day, that's what they're doing is building the spaceships and, you know, he's off being a hermit. So that's essentially their (laughs) timeline right there. Okay. We don't really need anything else until we reunite. So, so now let's go back a little bit. So finally it's chapter seven. I wrote it down seven chapters in by the time we get to Rowan and Citra and they get discovered. (laughs) Jerry and Posuelo are out, you know, salvaging the wreckage and they pull up the vault and they go inside and he's like, Oh, I think you better come see this. (laughs) And so they find Rowan and Citra. And then, so, you know, they get taken to revival centers. However, they're in separate places. (laughs) They're in, they're both in Amazonia with uh, Scythe Posuelo, but Citra, we, when she wakes up is in a revival center and she's recovering. She's in this bed. She's being taken care of. You want to know where Rowan is? Rowan's in a prison cell (laughs) because Scythe Posuelo thinks that because Goddard made them think that Mm -hmm. Rowan was the reason that Endora sank, even though he wasn't, but they don't know that. So he's got it. Rowan in a prison cell. Um, anyway, so he, you know, he catches Citra up and says, you know, it's been three years that you've been out. Goddard's trying to take over the world. You know, here's kind of what's going on. So that's how we get into their storyline. Finally, it takes so long. And then there's a lot that happens with the two of them. Before we get into that, I just want to say, so shortly after that, there's a few chapters later where Scythe Rand goes, she goes to this like mountain, right? And you're like, what is she doing? She goes to this place. It's like, you know, up nowhere land. And she turns on this like computer and she says, hello, tiger. And this computer says hello to her. And you're like, what is going on? So they have these things where... It's okay. Tiger is dead. He's dead. But their like informationist stuff is saved, like in the back brain of the Thunderhead. I don't remember yeah. exactly how it worked. And so they can go and like pull up these specific computers on these spots and it's like a construct of them and you can talk yeah. to them. And he doesn't, and you know, and his construct doesn't really know who she is or remember her. But it's really more for her because she had feelings for him and because she feels so guilty 
about killing him and what she did to him. And so she goes and has these conversations with his construct. And I was like, oh, Scythe Rand. Like, I really felt bad for her in those moments. Like, I want to hate her sometimes. But other, but in these moments, I was like, oh, you poor thing. Well, and, and when, like, I really... I actually really empathized with her in a lot of ways that I wasn't expecting to, especially throughout the second book when, when Goddard turns on her um, Mm -hmm. because she's abhorrent. She's done something terrible, um, but she's also in a really abusive relationship. And so, um, so at the, yeah, again, we're making some statements, making some waves with this book um, just with what, content Neil Schusterman has uh, chosen to include in it and for that Mm -hmm. I am very very grateful that I read this book because I think it was well done and like grief work is hard and so it's kind of interesting that they have these like pilgrimages that they go on to try to process their grief and her grief is super complicated because she's the one who murdered him right 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 Mm -hmm. and it is and so speaking of things that get explored in this book uh, yeah, another one is after we, you know, finally come across Scythe Rand and we get more into Goddard and his storyline, Goddard decides that he wants to change the gleaning rules because he decides that instead of them gleaning the way that they have been for thousands and thousands, all these years, he they want to have a way to glean people who they don't like who they yes. don't like so he decides he's like well you know how can we do this you know because the the scythe rules say that they cannot glean by bias and so they decide to alter that you know and redefine what bias means and yeah he, here's here's how this goes they each and i was so so picturing the Holocaust here as I was reading this and I was, this was actually like kind of upsetting for me in a way reading this part because what they end up just do like each of the underblades who are with him Mm -hmm. and Scythe Rand is there, but she didn't give um, a people group who she wanted to eliminate, but the under the other, the underblades did one of them said they wanted to eliminate people who have chosen, who have specific yeah. genetic options and lean towards a certain way. So for example, all the people in Madagascar yeah. who choose Aww. to live however they want their gender. And then somebody says they want, they want to get rid of all the tonists, big mm-hmm. surprise. Um, <laughs> and so they have these things and Scythe, here's, okay. And it, like you were just saying, I actually like, I really liked Scythe Rand a lot more in this book. This was this mm. book was I she was my favorite in this book because she really started to stand up to Goddard more and realize more of what was going on. And so I liked her for that reason. Cause she you know, she in this conversation was like, You can't do that. That's not okay. And Goddard says, Come now, I'm sure you've all thought about it. You can't tell me you haven't fantasized about doing away with one pesky group or another. That's how he describes them. And can I just tell you, I actually was like livid when I read this. Not not because like just because it's Goddard, not because Neil Schusterman is making the statement, but because that is how the world is and has been for so long. And I was like, it just made me angry because it's so true, unfortunately, mm-hmm. that people have these biases and like Hitler, which was the drastic one, got rid of all of these people. And I was like, oh my gosh, you know what? What's really scary is that somebody could decide to do that again. 
And I mean, hopefully we have learned from this and that won't ever happen again. But anyway, there's my little soapbox. <laughs> Absolutely. I love it. Here, here. Yeah, I I appreciated that too, because of course, the we talked about when we were discussing Scythe, how it was kind of macabre the whole like premise of these gleanings and a person whose job it is to kill people um, as kind of like population control. We discussed Mm -hmm. that we unpacked it in previous episodes. Go back and listen to those if you haven't already. (laughs) But in this one, we're really looking at um, like the morals around it and the ethics around it to an extent of how bad it could go wrong because the scythedom was set up without thunderhead oversight. And because humans are fallible, we see now that, yeah, this is going bad really quickly because, because Goddard is a monster and turning everything (laughs) he touches into ugliness and ugliness Mm -hmm. that we can see reflected in the prejudices of our our own societies, right? So again, what I loved about how Neil Shusterman wrote his books is that even though it's a futuristic world where he's done so much world building and it's so well composed over the three novels, there are these direct connections to our society and our, Mm -hmm. our existence, our reality here in, you know, our modern times, the readers that are reading this book can pull on those threads and see, oh yeah, like that would be really bad (laughs) if someone had that power and could complete a genocide in like the blink of an eye because they've been enabled to. And you know what? And he does later in a way, this is what happens. So Goddard just all throughout the books becomes even more and more and more and more power hungry. And he like, okay, so when they pulled up the vault and found Citra and Rowan, remember that vault had all of the gems in it for all of the scythe rings. It's got the diamonds and all the colored gems in it. And it's decided that all the gems will be split amongst all of the scythe gems in the different countries. Well, Goddard ends up like sending messages out and telling, you know, the different scythes that, the the head, the different high blades that, you know, in order for them to be peaceful and live harmoniously, you know, they should do this and this and all these things and, you know, and honor him. And so they all end up bringing him all of their diamonds and he's like convincing them this, right? And then, okay, so Rowan, Citra and Rowan in the end up at a Saif Pozuelo's Amazonian house fortress, essentially. Somebody comes, these bad scythes from somewhere else come, they try and attack them, they want to get Citra and Rowan, and they all escape. Rowan ends up getting captured by Scythe Rand and ends up with Goddard. So Goddard wants to, he hates Rowan, he hates Rowan. And in his craving for more power, he decides that he wants to kill Rowan, but he wants to make a huge spectacle of it. Mm-hmm. So he, you know, like invites everybody. He does this big um, communication on the screens, sends this big message out and tells everybody, you know, come witness this. I have captured the man who sank Endura and, you know, and we're going to punish him. We're going to glean him publicly for everybody to see. So all of these people come to this huge stadium. And the idea is, is that Goddard is going to burn Rowan alive in this enclosed, mind you, stadium and in front of all these 
people who have come to see it. Well, what ends up happening is, is that Rowan, right before he is, he's tied to a stake. It's, you know, and right before it's rolled out, these other sites come in. I think they were Amazonian, but I'm not on that page of my notes. No, um, they're Texan. Oh, they're the Texas. Texan. That's right. That's yeah. right. The Texan, the Texan sites. Because Scythe Constantine breaks away from Goddard and he goes and joins the Texas sites. And um, he tells them like all the nasty stuff that Goddard is doing and we have to stop this and blah, blah, blah. So the Texas sites come, they end up rescuing Rowan. Well, when, and they put the guy who was guarding Rowan on the stake to be burned. So it gets rolled out and Goddard's given this huge speech. And then uh, <laughs> Rand is like, that's not Rowan. <laughs> and they look. And so Goddard goes crazy. And yeah. In his fury and in his I am almighty, powerful Goddard, he decides, he tells all the slice in the arena to glean all the people in there. And so it, there's just this huge, like, mass gleaming. Thousands of people are killed. And he yeah. essentially carries out this massacre. And it's ridiculous. And you're like, yeah, this is why people should not be given this much power because this is what happens. You know, this mm -hmm. is like the extreme. And I think probably definitely a point that Neil Schusterman was trying to make, you know, like we cannot let people have this much power and get away with it. Yeah. And, and power unchecked, right? Like that. Yes. Unchecked. That, um, that he became a, like just, yeah. A unchecked power hungry psychopath. Yeah. I, I actually, it's interesting because you brought that point up and I had almost forgotten about it. I, yeah. I was like, Oh yeah, that's what happened to Rowan. That's why he wasn't with Citra's because yep. he was present at this huge mass gleaning and it was real ugly. And then Goddard went psycho. Um, <laughs> so I kind of was like, Oh, I repressed all of that because yeah. it was really Horrific. like, and horrific and yeah it was yeah. it was well done in the sense that it makes you really consider the consequences for this kind of uh unchecked power right yeah so that's kind of goddard's crazy storyline and in the end i am going to say what happens at the end he, yay he figures out it's a whole long thing but he ends up figuring out where everybody ends up in the atoll. And so he and Scythe Rand are flying on this plane to try and get there and they get past the blind spot and they're going and he is telling, um, they have other Scythe with them in different planes and he's just telling them to, um, to attack. And the other planes are like, I can't do this anymore, blah, blah, blah. And they leave, but Goddard is still attacking and Rand totally breaks. She's like, I can't take this anymore. You know, you've had enough of this. Guess what she does? <laughs> she kills him. <laughs> Yay. Oh my gosh. That was probably the highlight of the book for me right there. Is that bad? I probably no. sound crazy because I'm like, hey, she killed him. Who I'm enjoying somebody's death, but it's well deserved in this case. So she killed him, and it was so magnificent. And then, and then, you remember what she does after that with his with his body? Doesn't she put Tiger mm -hmm. back together? She does. <laughs> she does. She yeah. does. She takes Goddard's body, which remember is Goddard's head attached to Tiger's body, actually. And she takes him to a revival center, but she has, and I talk about this in the book at one point, she has Tiger's memories and his memory construct from mm -hmm. the back brain of the Thunderhead implanted into it so that he is again tiger. So when he wakes up in the revival center and he's 
you know, he's like, oh, he doesn't realize what's going on. And she, you know, she, you get the idea that she's going to explain it to him and then they're going to move forward and mm-hmm. whatever and probably end up and be together and it's going to be this whole thing. So, but yeah, that was one of my favorite moments when she killed Goddard. So he gets it yeah, in the yeah. end. Whew. Yeah. Thank the and, Lord. And I think like, <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, if this is all right, mm. like we can start transitioning into talking about the end because it really was, yeah. you mentioned earlier mm. that it was really creative and fantastic. And and I, I actually, I really arrived for the ending. Like it it felt mm-hmm. so creative and interesting. And there were a lot of things that just, that maybe I wasn't, wasn't even that they were twist. It just, I wasn't expecting the story to turn out like that when I started right. Scythe. So the ending was really interesting. It it is. And let me, we can talk about the ending, but let me just kind of give a little brief little explanation of how we get there. So we've talked about each of these people individually. So remember, so Faraday Munira and all the hundreds of Nimbus agents are on the island. Okay. And they're making all these rocket ships, these spaceships. And then Jerry and Pasuelo are, end up together with Anastasia because they have to leave Amazonia because it's not safe. So they all travel over to Africa where Grayson also is because the Thunderhead told Grayson, I think you should go traveling, you know, trying to tell him it's not safe. You need to leave. So Grayson and curate Mendoza end up traveling over to Africa as well. They end up all of them coming together and Anastasia, it's hilarious because Anastasia's like, wait a minute, it's you. You're and you're the toll? What? So then, you know, they have to explain to each other all the stuff that's happening. So they so they all end up together. And then through the leading of the Thunderhead, <laughs> they all end up on a ship that takes them to the island. Okay, so I've skipped over a lot, but that's generally what happens. So then, so they get to the islands. And again, we have this like awesome reunion. <laughs> Cause so when they were in Africa, um, Citra had started to make kind of like announcements, um, you know, over their televisions and whatnot, showing that she was alive and that she wasn't mm-hmm. dead so that the people would know. She finds out all this like information about Goddard and tries to turn people against him. And it's this whole thing. And Munira learns about it because I think the Thunderhead provided them with like radios or TVs themselves on the island to use so they can get communication and know what's going on. And she goes and tells Faraday that Anastasia is alive. So then he ends up coming back to the main island. He gets out of his hermit life (laughs) and he comes back. And so then when they get there, they're all together. Now, mind you, you know, and she seats him. She's really excited. And then all of them are there except for Rowan because he was in Texas with the Texan scythe. But then remember he, the Texan scythe, oh my gosh, they ask Rowan to glean scythes who they know are bad. And he was like, wait a minute, you wanted <laughs> to put me in jail for this before. Now you want me to do it? And they're like, well, now things are out of control and we have to stop Goddard. So yeah, we want you to do this. So then, like I said earlier, he's going to glean somebody and he's at that cafe. And then that's when Cirrus talks to him and Cirrus gives him a plan and tells him what to do. So Grayson ends up on a, a ship that goes to the toll. <laughs> 
of the islands. And so Ben, or I mean, Rowan, excuse me. I see so many characters. I can't keep them straight. <laughs> exactly. No, I, I was following you. Um, <sighs> and on a ship with a bunch of corpses. Yes. All right. Which ends up on the island. And then Rowan and Citra have the most amazing reunion and it's fantastic. But now we get to the ending. Let's wrap it up. Let's talk about those dead corpses. What a what a cheerful tone to take <laughs> when talking about corpses. That was that was like very happy go lucky. <laughs> well, it's because I know what's coming because the corpses this is true. the corpses have have a meaning to them. So okay, so there have been a lot of people killed. Remember, like all throughout this book, lots of people die. The Tonists in Africa are uprising and all, like lots of people are uprising because Goddard's an idiot and all this kind of stuff. And lots of people die. And the Thunderhead, who then becomes Cirrus, so Cirrus, <laughs> tells, remember I said earlier, everybody kind of, when everybody's on the island, they gather together and have this meeting. And this is when we discover about Cirrus. Well, then Cirrus tells them the plan. Okay. Mm-hmm. Part of the plan is to get the dead bodies of the tonists. Okay. So all of these now tonists typically burned their dead, but they were told not to do this. And instead to put all of these dead bodies in these containers and ship them on these cargo ships to the island. Okay. Which sounds really crazy and then we, <laughs> because it is. And then we find out why. Cirrus kind of, and you're going to help me build this plan in case I don't do it exact justice. All right. So here's what it is. So Cirrus's plan is to use the rockets that they've been building to take all of the people who have been gleaned, all of the, these dead Tonus, other people who have been gleaned to a new planet, to a new mm-hmm. planet. They're getting off of earth and they're going to colonize a new planet and start over. And what's going to happen is he's going to take all those tonists and he can reset them actually. And what he's going to do is you, you want to talk about selection and selecting like a chosen population. This is exactly what happens here. Cause Cirrus picks like people who are the best of the best, you know, the best and brightest minds, the kindest people, the most loving people, blah, blah, blah. And that's who he's going to reset these dead gleaned people as once they get to planet, which by the way, will take like 170 years to get to. Oh, right. It's a good thing they can all turn a corner because (laughs) they're going to need to. (laughs) Absolutely. Yep. That I got that right, didn't I? Cirrus is all yeah, Cirrus's plan and, there. <laughs> well, and it's multiple ships to multiple planets. I think is right. how I like that there was a list of habitable planets, which is one of the in-between chapter things that you get thrown like that get thrown mm-hmm. at you. And then yeah, that there's a bunch of different ships that are going to different mm-hmm. planets. And again, like my little video game heart, there is a, a video game called Mass Effect. It's very mm-hmm. popular. And they kind of do this in their, um, it's a role-playing game, which is like totally okay. up my alley. Um, <laughs> they kind of do this, a similar thing where they send arcs out kind of, of colonizers and settlers to go to planets when Earth is being attacked. So I, 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 it was an interesting direction. I wasn't expecting it 
at yeah, all. Yeah, me either. Uh, I was until caught... we got introduced into the ships and then, yeah, it totally, like you were going to say, caught you off guard, right? Yeah, exactly. It did, but I didn't hate it. I liked it because I thought it was a very unique and creative way to fix that. And then, and then what's fun is, is that not everyone does that. Like in the end, Citra and Rowan and a bunch of, you know, a bunch of the Tonists and the, the Nimbus agents are the ones who leave and do that, but not everybody else does. They go on the rockets and they don't. And side note here. So you remember I said earlier, Goddard comes and he's attacking the island as the rockets are trying to leave and Citra is taken out by one of the shots that's fired at the island and she is rendered deadish and Rowan like freaks out and he's like, I have not come all this way and gone through all of this to be with her and have her end up like dead now and not be able to be with her for 174 years until we get to this planet. But, you know, Cirrus is insistent, like, no, you need to be the captain of this ship. I want you to run it and keep the people in charge. And so Rowan finally agrees and says, okay, you know, and he puts her body down on the cargo bay with all the other bodies. And, but he, you know, he kind of makes a deal with Cirrus and says, I'll do this. But when we get there, you have to let me turn a corner and you have to turn me back to this exact age that I am right now. Because when she wakes up, she's going to still be that age. Mm -hmm. So this way Mm -hmm. he can be set to the same age as her. And um, I just have to read this because I absolutely love the very ending of the book. And it's when they get there and she is woken up and, you know, it says, he says, hey, he says gently, she's alert enough to realize he's holding her hand. Perhaps he's been holding it for a while. Hey, she says back, her voice grovelly and rough. Weren't we just running? Yes, there was something going on and we were running. His smile broadens. Tears fill his eyes. They drop slowly as if gravity itself has become less adamant, less demanding. When was that? Citra asks. Only a moment ago, Rowan tells her. Only a moment ago. And that's actually how it ends. And I, I just love that. I love that they, even though it takes 174 more years, they do, children. they do end up together in the end and get to yeah. start from where they left off essentially because Rowan gets to reset back to, the, back to that time. But um, yeah, so that's kind of how they go, but not everybody chooses that ending. And so we have other endings. So one thing that kind of happens before they escape on the rocket ship, so is because Citra is there, the door in the bunker can now be opened because they have two scythe rings, Citra's and Faraday's. So they unlock the door and they realize, you know, and they find it's like an old communication center and a control room and they find this old scythe journal in there, but it's in Italian. So Munira has to translate it. And then they figure out that it's a transmitter and they realize, you know, that's the fail safe. This is what the original sites set up in order to change things. If the system were going into ruin, they don't know what it does, (laughs) (laughs) but when it comes time and when it comes time and, you know, Goddard's attacking the rocket ships are trying to leave. What happens is, is that they push his button that's in there. And, or Faraday does, I should say, um, because Faraday and Munira do not leave on the rocket ships. They decide to stay there. They really like the atoll and they decide that they want to stay there for a little while. To be hermits together, I know, which is awesome. What's, so what's funny is um, 
there's a really funny line when they're talking about what happens. Munira says, maybe it kills bad sites. And Rowan says, no, that would be me. (laughs) (laughs) And I just love that part. I was like, "Mm, nice little bit of comedy in there because he does. But um, so anyway, what it does is they turn the key and immediately they're Faraday and actually it's Faraday and Munira who do it because Citra takes off her ring and gives it to Faraday and says, I'm not Scythe Anastasia anymore. I'm just Citra. I want to be with Rowan. Like this is who I am. So he had given it to Munira and the two of them turn the keys, do the fail safe. And what happens is immediately their rings burst and totally and like disintegrate the gems that are in them disintegrate and there's this like black oozy stuff that comes out and then Emil Schusterman like flips to different parts of the world where all of a sudden people start dying and what has happened is is that the rings what was inside the ring was like different diseases all Mm -hmm. each ring had like a different kind of disease in it and so it's like it's set up so that I need to find this so that I can make sure I say this correctly Okay, here it is. So there are inside the rings, um, there are 10 plagues that the founding scythe developed. And so they're very akin to like pneumonia, heart disease, cancer, stroke, um, all these different things. And so what's going to happen is, is that what happened is one in 20 people got sick and then died. So what it will do is the fail safe is that five times a century, 5% of the earth's humans will be killed by these 10 plagues. And so that is how they're going to control the population because the scythedom is no more. All the rings have been destroyed. There are no more scythes. So now they have this plan where these plagues have come about. And then, you know, like I said, five times a century, 5% of the earth's humans will be killed from these plagues. And what's really cool though is Faraday and Munir, like I said, stay on the atoll for a little while. And then they end up traveling back to, um, to the mainland, back to the main countries. And Faraday, we see him and he's at somebody's house and he does a sympathy gleaning. So mm-hmm. like there's somebody dying of one of these plagues and they don't want to suffer any longer. And so he, he gleans them for sympathy reasons. And it just, and he says he finds it very fulfilling. And it's, I thought that was a very fitting ending for Faraday because Absolutely. He, I mean, he's just this, like his character is just, he's very empathetic and he just has this um, softness about him in a way. And he, he's so caring. And um, so I felt like that was a real good ending for him. Did you like that too? Or Yeah, I did. And I, I liked um, that it, it almost like the scythes that were not corrupt ended up being mm-hmm. more like professional mourners. Like they they ended up doing similar things as Faraday, where it's either their sympathy gleaning or they're mourning the lost, essentially, the the people who are dying from these diseases. And again, I, I love that. I love the exploration yeah. of grief that happens throughout the trilogy. It's fantastic. Yeah, I do too. So we have left Grayson and Jerry. We have to find out what happens to them at the end. Grayson and Jerry also choose not to get on the rocket ships and go up to space. And so they, they get on, what happens is the people who don't get on the rocket ships end up getting on different ships that are there, like the cargo ships and go out 
into the bay out in the water to kind of watch and be away from it because you don't want to be right under a rocket when it's taking off. So yep. um, shocker. <laughs> they're out there. And what's funny is that neither one of them knew what the other one had decided, but they go out there and, you know, they tell each other, well, I'm not getting on the rocket ships. Oh, I'm not going on the rocket ships either. You know, and they kind of realize that they have these feelings for each other and they decide that they're going to stay together and then they, that they will eventually leave the atoll and travel together and go settle down and have a life somewhere. So yeah, so that's kind of how, and then that's how it ends. So I really felt like as much as I, there were parts that I was frustrated with and didn't enjoy things that I was like, I could have done without this. I did love the ending. And like we both said earlier, once it got to a certain point, it was like smooth sailing after that. And it went much faster. And then I really enjoyed how each of these storylines, they all came together at the end on the islands. And then they didn't all stay together. They went their separate ways, but they each went away that made sense for them. And I felt like Mm -hmm. each storyline was brought to a good, strong conclusion. And I was very satisfied at the end of the book. And like when I, when I took a step back and kind of thought about the book as a whole, um, and then within the context of the trilogy, I was so impressed with Neil Shusterman's um, world building skills and the scope, the scope of the story. It was so well composed. It's expansive. He was very creative with this kind of futuristic genre and I loved that like when I talk about world building did you catch on about uh Citra and Rowan's last names because at the end of the book I was driving somewhere and it all of a sudden hit me like Citra's last name is Terra Nova which means new world and (gasps) yeah yeah And uh, Damish, I looked it up and it means fool. And so it was interesting to me just the scope of his creativity because those clues were there at the beginning. He knew (laughs) what direction he wanted to take the story in, even though for us as readers, the third novel might have seemed a little bit disconjointed. He Mm -hmm. had a he had a plan and it was very obvious when that when I, when I clued into that, I was all of a sudden like, holy moly, like this is, this is an amazing like work of, of fiction that spanned those three novels with so much creativity. And like at the end, when Citra and Rowan are, you know, uh, when Citra's waking up in the hospital, Rowan's been alive for, you know, over a century, kind yes. of, kind of solitarily leading his people to a new, a new beginning beginning um I loved how his last name is the fool and he had those 140 years or whatever to grow up a little Mm -hmm. bit like he he matured he grew up and by the time they arrived at their new home like Citra and him were now on equal footing right she was the new world the new like the new earth and now he's no longer the fool i think he's kind of shedding some of that identity so i just was like respect neil schusterman oh yeah all the way through because that was like as soon as i realized her name is terra nova oh my goodness i thought (laughs) like that was that was pretty masterfully done i agree that is really cool i never i hadn't thought about that but that is so cool and another another thing too that like in this book so the tonus they always talk about the tone, the toll, and the thunder, right? The toll, okay, Grayson, and I mentioned this earlier, his name, 
Grayson Tolliver has told <laughs> in it. The islands are the atoll. And you're like, oh my gosh, could it have been any more obvious? And I didn't. And it's a, like, this is why he had to explain it because there are people like me who didn't catch that obviousness. But then when Munira and Faraday enact the fail safe, mm-hmm. the transmitter, in order, the transmitter lets out this really loud tone, this really loud sound. And all the tonists around the world are like, oh, it's the tone. It's here. It's happened. You know, so it's like, you know, the Thunders part, they talk about that in a different part too. So it's like he brought all of that together as well in the end. And just, yeah, it really, it really is. Um, I know I kind of bashed <laughs> this a little bit at the beginning, but like I said before, I really do have total respect for him and his writing. And it is amazing. All the like little pieces that he brought together and put together to create all three of these in this trilogy. It really is masterful. It's very, very, very well done. So, yeah. And I think you can hold both like critique and appreciation at the same time right because yes because that's that's the way I felt after finishing the tool was that I had some critiques some choices I would have made differently as a writer myself but as a reader and appreciating the scope of the novel like really you can do both of those things at once. So I know it mm-hmm. feels like we bashed it a little bit, but at the same time, like you can, you can critique something without it being bashing. Right. And I think that's yes. what I would like, what I wanted to share with your audience, because I, I really did think that, yeah, there were different choices that could have been made, but at the same time, man, the, the story that expanded over the three novels is quite fantastic and amazing. Yeah. It's pretty awesome. It is. It's really good. So I really, um, I would, my overall view at the end of this is that I would recommend this trilogy to people. And I do, I tell people to read it. Um, but those of you listening, you know, go read other stuff by him too. Thank you so much for Victoria for joining me for this trilogy. And I heard you mention Lee Bardugo earlier and I have actually not read Six of Crows yet. I know, I know it's on my list. I know. I know people keep telling me like to read all of these books by her and I just haven't done it yet, but they're on my list. So when I do get there, you have to come back on and talk with me about her books. Okay. Oh, I would absolutely love an excuse (laughs) to reread and refresh my brain on, on six of crows and uh, crooked kingdom. I loved, loved, loved those books. And like, I have a girl crush on her. I low key want to be (laughs) her when I grow up because yeah, her, her writing style is just amazing. Uh, So before we finish for today, Victoria, why don't you tell everybody where they can find you on social media and follow you? Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, Yeah, I am a young adult novelist and I'm working on my um, like debut novel. It's like, getting ready to send off to publishers. I'm really excited about that. But I do have a writing platform that I've worked really hard to develop while I've been working on my book. So you can find me on pretty much every social media website out there. I think I'm (laughs) even on LinkedIn. (laughs) And so Facebook, Instagram, uh, at Victoria Coops, that's K-O-O-P as in like Peter or Pi. S writes, um, or you can find me online. I've got a website. It's victoriacoops.com. I can send you the links so you can include them in your show notes. But if uh, listeners could go and give me a like, that would be super, super awesome because I get to use those as leverage to get a publisher. Nice. 
Yes, I will definitely put all the links to Victoria's social media in the show notes for today. So make sure you guys go and check her out. All right. Well, thank you everybody for listening and following along with this trilogy. And uh, we will chat again soon. Today's podcast featured the book, The Toll by Neil Shusterman. Be sure to follow YA Book Chat on Instagram and Facebook. And don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a positive review. YA Book Chat was created and is hosted by me, Leah Stuhler. <laughs>